Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine, and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face, you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Welcome to episode 17 of Girls on Film. This is Anna Smith. I'm coming to you from Cameo Studios in Mayfair. We have two fantastic critics with us today. Clarice Lochry is Chief Film Critic for The Independent. Welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me. And Sophie Monks-Kaufman is contributing editor to Little White Lies. Hello, Sophie. Hi, Anna. Now, Clarice, first tell us a little bit about your work as a film critic. Well, this is, I've just started in the role of chief film critic, so it's all a little bit new to me and a little bit big and exciting because this is what I've always dreamed of doing and, and it doesn't feel quite real. But I have been working as a sort of general film writer, film critic for several years. Um, I've worked at The Independent and I wrote for Little White Lies before then and a bunch of different places. And um, I occasionally sit in for Mark Mode on Komodo Mayo's film review when he is on holiday. Yeah. And it's great to see more female film critics doing high profile jobs. So congratulations. Brilliant stuff. Now, Sophie, there was something specific we wanted to talk about that you have done. Uh, she found it at the movies and you have written an essay called From Female Subservience to Eating Men Alive. And I need to know more about this. OK, um, that's just my personal MO. <laughs> no, so uh, my dear friend and also contributor to Little Wet Lies, Christina Newland, has put together an anthology about female desire. And the brief was that you're taking film analysis, but combining it with the personal essay. So using the medium of film to reveal something personal about you and your desire. And without turning this into a therapy session, I've chosen The Stepford Wives from 1975, in which it's no spoiler to say that women are severely repressed to the point that Stepford Wife has entered the culture as a term to mean no will of your own. And, and the opposite pole are taking Claire Denis' cannibal film, Trouble Every Day, in which uh, cannibal, played by Beatrice Dahl, whenever she gets horny and has sex with a man, she also, unfortunately for him, eats him. So I'm trying to locate my relationship to men somewhere between those two extremes. That's brilliant. When can we read that? So 2020 is the date. It's quite broad. It's a whole year. Uh, if you follow Christina Newland on Twitter or me on Twitter, we will be sure to shout once we have a specific date in 2020. Great stuff. Thank you. That sounds very attention grabbing. And we're starting with another very interesting, possibly quite shocking film today. It's a new release. Um, it's out 5th of July and it's called Midsummer. It comes from Ari Aster, the director of Hereditary, and it stars Florence Pugh. We love Florence. She's playing a bereaved American who has a death in the family. She flies to Sweden with her boyfriend, played by Jack Rayner, and his mates. They go to a midsummer festival. Sounds fun, right? But this is a horror movie. Um, they're told it's a community experience, but it becomes quite clear that it's more of a cult. What do you think? It's like another world. Tomorrow's a big day. Is it scary? What is it? It has special properties. <laughs> What am I going through? We just need to acclimate. I don't want to acclimate, I want to go. Absolutely not. What's happening? 
Now, we've all just come out of this screening, right, and we're slightly reeling. I found it a kind of trippy psychological horror. Shades of classic horrors like The Wicked Man is the obvious one that pops into my mind, but, but other some more recent offerings like The Witch. I overall really liked it. Clarice, what did you think? I agree. I'm really fascinated by what Arias is doing with horror because there's something about his plots and his ideas that that feel really catchy and almost quite mainstream. And I can see already on Twitter that people are really excited about it. And then you go into these films and they just break every horror convention. They're a little bit grueling on purpose. And it's almost the point of the film is to really sort of put you through this experience. And, And I love that. I love that he's sort of punishing audiences and treating them at the same time. And it's just every convention that you associate with mainstream horror is just thrown out of the window. Sophie, did you enjoy this and did you feel that it had strong characters? Because for me, that is one of the key elements to horror is really strong characters. So I was viewing it very much in concert with his first film, Hereditary, which lots of people loved. And I was merely lukewarm on. And I really enjoyed it. I I liked the way it took its time. It's two hours and 20 minutes. And first of all, it shows Florence Pugh at home and she's got this boyfriend played by Jack Rayner who wants to break up with her but can't bring himself to you and things happen of profound emotional input and then they go to this Swedish festival and everything just takes a really long time to unpack and so like Clarice was saying it's punishing you but it's also you're, you're falling into this world and as for the characters I don't know it's fascinating because because they're in this very fish out of water situation this bizarro creepy festival in Sweden a lot of the time the principal characters are just taking it in they don't have that much to say so I would say they're more sketched than refined but because you are seeing everything from their point of view and as you are reacting to the horror so are they it's quite an impressionistic way of conveying character and it aligns you to those characters yeah, I thought they were very relatable and also it's important that you didn't have the horror trope of, of Florence being just the disposable sexy girl. She really is the central character and I think she's not dressed in provocatively. She's allowed to be very vulnerable and troubled. Yeah, I think the sort of thing that I've I've been really left with from that movie is the idea of loss and and pain and what she does go through is something that really stays with her and it affects her the whole way through the movie. And so, yes, you have all these insane things happening. You have just images that are just going to stay there forever. But then underneath it all, I think, is this very heartfelt story about how we process loss and how we process trauma and, and different sort of huge changes in our lives, I think. It's bubbling the whole way through the movie, even if you don't explicitly see it, it's there. And I love that. And I think that was present in Hereditary as well, because it was, you know, this sort of weird ghost cult story on top. And then below that, there are all these emotions. And I think that's it's hard to do, but beautifully done. But the horror is almost a mechanism for revealing the true nature of these characters' relationships to each other, because they're able to hang out together and have... Because there's a group of friends and then there's... Florence Pugh and her boyfriend and they have this semblance of like being together when they're in this easy like easygoing lifestyle but when you put them in this situation where so much bizarre stuff is happening you see where the bonds lie or don't lie and whether Florence Pugh actually really does have any connection to the people that she's gone there with it's like 
a more extreme version of you know when you go through something in your life and you that's when you realize who's there and who isn't I think that's very well put. And I think a lot of the best personality-driven horrors do that. And that's one of the reasons I like this, because it had great characters. It's also darkly funny, don't you think? It's really funny. It's because the villains of the piece are also quite polite and well-mannered. So when Clarice was saying it doesn't really go into horror tropes, no one suddenly has horns. Like, everyone's got a really plausible explanation. So there's this really interesting interplay between, like, stuff that is so not everyday and then this dialogue, which is just kind of like, hey, guys, there could just be cultural differences, you know? Yeah, I like the idea that our heroes never really want to criticise what's going on because they're like, it's their culture. We just have to acclimate to what's going on and everyone in the audience is going, what are you doing? Just go, leave, please. (laughs) Do we think it's going to be a hit? Uh, I'm not sure because I think that's the thing with horror is that it seems like such an easy sell from the trailer. You go, ooh, it's like Wicker Man creepy, but there's so much going on in that movie and it is long and it isn't jump scare after jump scare. I have a feeling that a lot of people are going to go in, be horribly disappointed because it's not conventional, and then get very angry about it and tell everyone they know not to see it. So I feel like it might have quite a good opening weekend and then just kind of... I liked it. I would recommend it if you're going to go for a psychological slow-burning horror. But Clarice, you, you wouldn't recommend it? Or? No, I would. That's the thing. I recommend yeah. it, but I I think just because of the way that horror ad- is advertised these days, people go in expecting a certain thing. So I would say, go see it, but just don't expect it to be like every other horror movie. Be prepared and be open to it. And I think then you'll really sort of sink into it and really enjoy it. That's good advice. And, and be prepared for some pretty shocking scenes, right? Yes. Yes. There are certain images that once seen are never forgotten. There, yeah, there's yeah. certain animals I will never look at the same way again. I mean, can't say anymore, but it's yeah. pretty... I'm not looking forward to going to sleep tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, good luck with that. Thank you for taking one of the team and going to see that for us. Um, that was Midsummer. Our next film is a new release called Tell It to the Bees. It's set in 1952 in a small Scottish town. It stars Anna Paquin as a doctor and beekeeper. She begins a romance with a young mother, played by the great Holiday Granger. It's directed by Annabelle Jankel. We haven't seen much from her lately. She began her career making music videos for Talking Heads. She co-created Max Headroom. I don't know if anyone here apart from me remembers who he was, an 80s fictional AI TV show host. This is a very different beast. Uh, It's a period drama about a couple who dare to divide convention. I found it very conventional, though, in the telling. It's a small town, Jane. I saw them, Mum and Dr. Markham. Jesus. We should have thought about what might happen. If you come back here, I'll call the police. The university killed me again. Did you do that? Be a man. I want this. Clarice, what did you make of it? I was on board for quite a lot of it, and I think the bees of the title are literal bees, and the bees are very intertwined into the narrative in ways that I, I don't really want to spoil, but it tries to tread this very thin line between real kitchen sink realism and then a little bit of magical realism in a way that I found really confusing because I think if you're doing magical realism you have to sort of establish that this is 
some kind of fantasy world and not super, super gritty, realistic. And I think there's quite a lot of effort put into the the authenticity and the accuracy of the time and the social mores. And then you have all this B stuff, which just seems to come from some different movie. And I think, I think it was an ambitious thing to do. And I think it's a really hard thing to pull off. And maybe she would have been able to pull it off, but it just something about the balance just didn't quite work. Mm, that's interesting. Sophie, you're pulling a face here. This is radio, but what does that face tell me? Mm, <laughs> yeah, I, I I don't know how well the bees were woven into the story. And I hate to be down on bees. They're delightful creatures. We love bees. And the title is really something my friends and I have begun. Instead of, you know... Tell it to the hand because the face don't want to know. It's like, tell it to the bees. <laughs> I thought the same thing as well. That's exactly what it sounds like, which is doesn't give you a flavour of the film at all. No. But but the bees, uh, let's, so Anna Packham's a beekeeper and she's the local doctor. And the reason she meets Holly Granger is that Holly Granger has a young son who wants to come and see the bees. And then this brings the women together. Yeah. But the bees are, of course, female. Yes, they are. Uh, good to have female bee representation. Mm-hmm. Um I have a lot of time for Holiday Granger as an actress. She's excellent in the forthcoming Animals. Uh, Anna Paquin, she's been killing it since the piano. It's very appealing to hear these two in a romance together. I just don't feel that what they bring is necessarily supported by the elements of the film. As you said, Anna, it just feels, for a queer film, quite straight. Very much by numbers, very much by the book. And... I drew an unfavourable comparison with Carol. It's like 50s set lesbian love story and there's a child involved. In this case, there are bees involved. That's what sets it apart from Carol. But also, it's just... It feels workmanlike. It doesn't feel like any great passion has gone into making any elements of the story or relationships come alive. It trots along fine. You know, I'm not, I'm not angry about this film. I don't think... I want to boycott it. It's just a little underwhelming in the delivery. Yeah, I think it got more involving to me as it got more dramatic, which isn't always the best sign, but the general sort of dialogue and chit-chat did feel a bit flat to me. You mentioned you really liked Holiday Granger, Sophie. Mm. Um, How do you feel she got along with Anna Paquin on screen here in terms of the chemistry between them? Well, I feel like, without wanting to be too negative, there was something there, but in the way that their relationship was packaged on screen, there wasn't much of a chance for it to bubble when they got together it felt quite perfunctory so I felt they had a nice dynamic without having good chemistry I mean Clarice who would you recommend this to if anyone I think people maybe the period drama fans because I think that's the aspect of it that works it does feel grounded in history and I think there's an attention to detail to the costumes and to the surroundings and to you know it's set in this sort of industrial Scottish town and the whole setting is I don't know it just felt like a real place to me which was nice which was then confusing when all the bees were doing magic bee things Uh, yes with varied visual effects I'd say some of them were good some of them not so good yeah and I should know I have a mild bee phobia and it might be a warning to people who are afraid of bees there's a lot of close-ups of the bees and I had to look at the floor for a lot of the film because I can't look at bees for any wow. extended period of time which I don't know if that's going to be a useful warning for people because it does say bees in the title of the film but is that more or less disturbing than Midsummer for you? I think possibly the bees were more disturbing because it's just one of those it just makes me feel so uncomfortable to look at pictures of bees video of bees and the bees are such a 
a surprisingly big part of this. I didn't think they were going to be such a huge part of this film. I thought the bees were just going to be in the background, but they're... There's so many shots of bees. Are you all right even talking about this? I'm worried for you now. Yeah, I'm I'm okay now. I just I just had to close. But, so I missed a lot of the film, which maybe doesn't make but me. But most perfect. of them were CG. If that makes you feel better. True, but yeah, it was still convincing enough. Right, but there is a bit of a theme about sisterhood here in the bees. Again, not giving too much weight, but in in the sense that the bees coming together and working together, and I think they were trying for some parallels with that. But as you've both pointed out, I'm not sure how well those parallels. Were drawn, but yeah, my conclusion would be to agree and say it's for the sleepy period drama crowd, really. Yeah, and, and that's bee that. fans and, and bee, bee fans, fans. yes, exactly. along with the wonders by Alice Rohrwacker, another recent bee movie. They're all in vogue, aren't they? Mm. Yes, go girls, right? So that's out 19th of July. Tell it to bees, thank you. Our next film is called Knife Plus Heart. It's out on the 5th of July. It's a French film from writer-director Jan Gonzalez and it's been described as a queer horror odyssey. It stars Vanessa Paradis as Anne. She plays a producer of gay porn working in Paris in 1979. Her editor and lover Lois leaves her. She tries to win her back by shooting her most ambitious film yet with her trusted flamboyant sidekick Archibald, played by Nicholas Maury. As shooting gets underway, one of her stars is brutally murdered and it becomes very clear that there is a murderer on the loose. Um, Lots of playful genre references in this one, from slasher horrors to mainstream erotic thrillers like Basic Instinct. I thought it was a bit of a gay boogie night morphed with Nightmare on Elm Street, which is not a combination I thought I would ever see. Um, Sophie, this is a weird film, is it? You're kind of weird. Absolutely. And for me, it felt like a queer giallo film. Like even the color of the blood, like in Dario Argento and Mario Bava films, those Italian films, the blood is just this inexplicable bright red. So that type of reference for me just made the film feel very silly, but also very sincere in certain ways. And that combination of weird really works for me. You know, there's a broken heart in the mix. There's something happens at the end and that's climactic. And I won't say what it is, but it was very sincere, the delivery of it. But then... There's a lot of fun had with the scenarios and the colours, such eye-popping colours. So absolutely, to answer your question, it's my type of weird. (laughs) (laughs) Clarice, is it your type of weird? (laughs) Yes, confidently, yes. And I absolutely agree about that mix of the sincerity and the the violence because, I mean, it leans so hard into its references and I think inevitably, you know, it makes it a little bit clunky because those movies so often were clunky because it's all about, you know running from murder to murder and everyone's confused and no one knows what's going on. Um, But I think what really grounds it is those characters. And I think Vanessa Paradis especially was so perfectly cast because there's something about her that, like, I'm half French, so she's always, like, the little girl singing Jo Le Taxi (laughs) to me. And to see her now, you know, as this porn director who also really believes in the art of her film, which there's something quite sweet about that. She just really believes in the medium but at the same time there's there's something very dark about her and I think the way that that's done is just so careful to not go too far either way you're right I think we haven't seen her I don't feel like I've seen her in the right role for a while she doesn't pop up very often but she's so good in this she has a great scene where she kind of recruits a young builder who's completely straight and starts to persuade him um, to become a gay porn star and she's just so seductive and brilliant in that moment I thought she was great Sophie obviously she also plays a woman who is queer and in love with another woman do you think there's anything refreshing about the way that's portrayed in this film well she 
get some scenes where she gets to leave nothing on the table in terms of declaring her all-consuming, passionate love for this woman. And it's such a full-throttled declaration. I find that refreshing wherever I see it. I love those great melodramatic declarations of unsatisfied yearning. And there's something that she does that I'm definitely not going to spoil that was truly shocking and that the film actually treats with the weight and reverence it deserves. So even though this film is kind of like an episodic, anecdotal portrait of many murders, it's also, it's really a story of impossible love. Yes, that was very well put because I know exactly the bit you're referring to and I'm sure Clarice does too, which we can't reveal, but I think it's a very relevant topic for girls on film. So I think if people watch it, they will find that very interesting because it's very unusual to treat said subject matter she says dancing around what we're talking about but just watch it um a comedy it's quite funny as well one of my highlights is um you know they have a picnic and there's this post-op trans character who gives birth to a vodka bottle oh yeah so she <laughs> pretends to be pregnant and this vodka bottle pops out that was pretty funny clarice did you have any funny moments you yeah liked? i mean that was almost a bit of a, a john waters-esque like cheesy and grotesque because why not and I like it has that attitude of just let's be everything like let's be sexy and, and weird and out there and let's and that some of the porn scenes they film are just a bit ridiculous and maybe not like any porn that ever exists and and I like that I love that it manages to be playful even though it is still this you know gory murder spree she's a real envelope pusher is Anne say as the murders are happening she's incorporating them into the film she's making and there are a lot of moments where the people around her are like oh Anne oh she's going there oh she's incorporating the grisly murder of one of our beloved crewmates into this film so I think there, there are moments of complicity where you're invited in to be like this woman and you have a grudging respect just as you're like oh my god like this woman is a monster now, if you want to see Knife Plus Heart in very interesting surroundings, there's an event on Thursday, the 4th of July. Mubi has joined forces with Fringe and The Rio to present a very special preview screening of the deliciously kitsch film. Uh, it's a night-long celebration and includes a Q&A with actor Nicholas Mori and a special after-party in The Rio's own basement bar, plus a few surprises. So if you're London-based, that's for you. Knife Plus Heart is released in UK cinemas and exclusively on Mubi on 5th of July, and it's part of Mubi's LGBT season. So Knife Plus Heart is obviously an LGBTQ plus film and in honour of that, instead of the Bechdel test this week, we're going to have a look at the Russo test. So this comes from film historian and GLAAD co-founder Vito Russo and there are various rules, of course, like the Bechdel test. The film must contain a character that is identifiably lesbian, gay, bisexual and or transgender. That character must not be solely or predominantly defined by their sexual orientation or gender identity and they must be tied into the plot in such a way that their removal would have a significant effect. So you can't take them out of the film, basically. Um, and I, one that I'd like to pick, for example, is Booksmart that we had recently in episode 14. We did some wonderful interviews with the cast. And that wholeheartedly passes because it has a lesbian character as a central role. But that doesn't define her. She's a fully formed character. And she also, there's no way she can be taken out of this film because it's about two girls and their friendship. Um, Sophie, is there anything you'd like to recommend? Yes, this absolutely beautiful film that I saw at Queer Lisboa in 2014 called Something Must Break by Esther Martin Bergsmark. It's this dreamy, nightmarish character study of this very young trans woman and she has a loving relationship with a cis heterosexual man 
So there's that, but there's also her navigating all these spaces. It has this soundtrack of beautiful electronic music. I discovered this artist, Tammy Tamaki, through it. And so you feel the sensual pleasure she feels at being a woman. There's one scene, I remember even though I saw it five years ago, of her just sliding on these stockings. And you feel how she embodies her body and the sensual pleasure, but you also get to see what she's battling with on a more realist level. So in a way, it does what Telethabees doesn't do, which is it combines realism with impressionistic magical experiences and you could no way take her out of the story because it's her story and it's just a beautiful well-rounded trans portrait in which this character isn't made to suffer unduly um you know the film by Sebastian Lelio that that film I kind of liked it but also there's this fantastic woman yeah yeah yeah, Mm. but there's this kind of like whole like drag down punishment element this is just very alive vibrant cinematic portrait that looks beautiful that sounds beautiful and that contains so many different storytelling aspects brilliant so something must break if you have a chance to see it must break thank you for that recommendation Clarice oh I think the first film that came to mind just because I was sort of so impressed by its existence was Can You Ever Forgive Me by Marielle Heller just because it's a fairly mainstream awards contending film that has the two lead characters are gay. There's a lesbian played by Melissa McCarthy and a gay man played by um, Richard E. Grant. Richard E. Grant. I don't know why I blanked suddenly. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and the film isn't some, you know, tragic romance like Broke Red Mountain. They, those are their sexualities, but it's not the focus of the film. It's about her being a struggling biographer who starts to get into forgeries to make money and gets a little bit wound up and and her partner in crime is Richard E. Grant's character Jack Hawk and they start to form this sort of odd little friendship of just two people who are I don't know at at the end of their ropes in a way because she's so bitter about how she's been treated by the publishing industry and he's this sort of like he's seen everything, he's experienced everything, what do I do now with my life sort of character. He's floating through existence and I think it's just such a beautiful story and I'm just really happy that it exists. Yeah, I agree. I love that film. Yeah, Can You Ever Forgive Me? Great choice. Now, we've had some uh, audience members tell us that we should do a Girls on Film test and we think that is actually an excellent idea. So we need to come up with a few core rules. So I would like to ask the people at home to get in touch. Tweet me at Anna Smith Journal or go to our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Girls on Film podcast and give us your thoughts. Meantime, any thoughts in the studio here, ladies? I have a thought. It's not exactly well formed, but... You know how they say that sometimes women get ahead by like just acting like how a man would act? Mm, that's interesting. So I'd be interested in is there a female language that is not just a woman replicating the male language? I mean, I, that's a huge subject. I don't even know how you would define male language for female language. Would you say, could you replace it with a man and would it be identical, that sort of thing? Like if it's a female character? Because sometimes they actually have due to pressure groups taken a male character and just made it a woman Uh, yeah I don't know I just feel like there's got to be a more sophisticated metric that is perhaps got broader more radical ramifications I don't know again I'm just uh, spitballing here I don't know how to how to pin it down into an actual tangible tenet that you would have of girls on film just a thought but this is good this is we just want to start the conversation okay yeah I like that any any thoughts based on that I think my personal test is always does this woman resemble any woman in my life I think that for me is what really counts when you're watching women on screen. You're like, 
oh, I could imagine knowing this person. Because sometimes you see these female characters written by men and you're just like, this is unlike any human. This woman has never lived in all of history. Like, what is she doing? It's so weird and robotic. And sometimes it is because the man is trying to, like, put his own perspective on her perspective and it just ends up so strange. So I think it's as simple as that. Like, does this woman feel like I could go out for a, a coffee with yeah. her? Even if we didn't get along, does she feel real? Or is she the manic pixie dream girl that we all hear exactly, about? Exactly, yeah. which just, that's not a person. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I have one. Maybe, does she have bodily needs? <laughs> one thing I like about animals, which I mentioned earlier, is that you see the female characters, like, going to the bathroom, having their periods, unlike certain self-contained cool girl a la that gone girl David Fincher definition of the cool girl who can eat whatever she likes and stay, stay a size two and do everything with the boy so it's like does she have needs does she have bodily needs but can you flip it for men do we see many films where the male I'm sure we see more where the male protagonist needs to take a slash actually we do quite a lot in Midsummer, someone took a slash on a sacred tree oh yes yes and that was a bad idea mm, slight spoiler there but yeah I think it's pretty, think pretty obvious that that's yeah. a bad idea in yeah. a film like Midsummer. <laughs> that was very thought provoking thank you both very much anytime and thank you both for joining Girls on Film My pleasure thank you this podcast is supported by Cameo, a female-run audio production house and broadcast PR consultancy who deliver entertainment content and A-list guests to radio and podcasts around the world. We're currently sitting in their rather lovely Mayfair studio, which I highly recommend if you are doing a podcast. If you'd like to get in touch with them, they'd love to hear from you. Their website is cameopro.com. So we've just been talking about the Russo test and a film that definitely passes that is Vita and Virginia, the story of the love affair between socialite and author Vita Sackville-West, played by Gemma Arston, and the literary icon Virginia Woolf, played by Elizabeth Debicki. Virginia is a wickedly brilliant mind. I must know her. I hear nothing but reports of her madness. Madness. What a convenient way to explain away her genius. Now, this is directed by Chanya Button, and I'm absolutely delighted to welcome Chanya here to the studio. Thank you very much for having me. Now, Chanya, we first met when you directed a film called Burn, Burn, Burn in 2015, and I did a Q&A with you, and I love that film. Oh, thank you so much. I just want to encourage the listeners to seek that out. It's kind of a road trip female buddy movie, right? It is, and it yeah. is available on Netflix worldwide. Excellent. But now you've turned to a love story between two women. Yes. Tell me what made you excited about telling this story. Well, first of all, Virginia Woolf was one of my favourite writers. She wrote an essay called On the Cinema about the value of film. She was alive at the birth of film and was really excited about it as a new technology. She said it was our first opportunity as human beings to look at ourselves objectively because we would be looking at ourselves through a machine rather than filtered through the pen of a writer or the brush of an artist. And I often return to that essay whenever I'm uh, having a particularly tricky time making a film or, or working on a project. And I think that we often think of iconic artists from the past as sort of caught in amber and stuck in that moment. But that essay on the cinema proves, if nothing else, that Virginia Woolf was a really forward-thinking, revolutionary, progressive woman. And so the opportunity to make a piece of work about two really revolutionary women whose art and whose lives really shattered conventions of the time was a really exciting one because I think we are living in a moment now where there is much more opportunity, not just for women, but for people in general to 
be who they want to be and live the lives they want. It's wonderful and fortuitous and a great honour that Vita and Virginia is being released at the end of Pride Week in the UK. And Vita and Virginia opened BFI Flair Film Festival, which was amazing. I was there, great party. Great party. Yeah. <laughs> really good fun. BFI Flair throw an amazing yeah. party. yeah. Um, congratulations to them on a fantastic <laughs> it was fun it set a great tone right. and, and I must say it's nice to see an opening of a, of a festival like that of a story between two women because we do have a lot of gay men's stories which is also fantastic but that yeah. was really good to see and I sort of stood on stage at that festival and thought this is exactly why I've made the film because I think you know Pride Week and a festival like Flair is a space and a time for queer people who might not feel comfortable everywhere and every moment of their lives and it's a time and a place for people to be celebrated and for who they are to be celebrated and sort of as cheesy as it sounds I hope that everyone who buys a ticket to see the film knows that you know from start to finish of Vita and Virginia it's like a mini pride party but like a really emotionally intense one a really nerdy one uh, yeah do you think there's something wrong with me Something disconnected. I like things wild and complicated. It's clear to me that you believe yourself to be in love with Virginia. I am bewitched by your writing. You're going to project me into the shape of this Orlando. Yes, it's all about you. I mean, it's literary, it's romantic, but it's also you're playing a little bit with tradition yourself in terms of the presentation, in terms of the music. Um, did you want to kind of reflect their rebellious spirit, perhaps, in the way that you made the film? Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Our score is written by another brilliant woman called Isabel Wallabridge, who, in my opinion, is an absolute genius. Related, I presume, to Phoebe. Yes, yes, yes her sister. And Isabel was involved with the project from... You know, when I was writing the script, she read multiple drafts of the script. She was in and out of our rehearsal room. She was on the set. She was in our cutting room. And so her perspective on it was really woven into the fabric of the film. So if you go and see Vita in Virginia, you will, you will enjoy a kind of throbbing electronic beat, which we really enjoyed creating because these women were really progressive and really forward thinking and boundary breaking. So the score needed to be forward you know, it needed to sound like it was looking into the future. And Orlando, the novel that Vita Sackville West and Virginia Woolf's relationship inspired, is in itself sort of sci-fi-esque. It's a novel that's set over 300 years and the main character shapeshifts from male to female and back to male again and back to female again. And it's more like Doctor Who than it is a Jane Austen novel. So for, you know, a relationship that brought about a piece of art like that... We had to make something that felt a bit punk. And one of the themes of the film as well is biography and what it is to tell someone's life story. So, of course, we're subverting things left, right and centre. And Gemma Arterton was very involved from the beginning with this. Is that right? Yes, she yeah. brought me the project. Fantastic. So thank you, Gemma. I mean, what kind of direction and what kind of discussions did you have with her and with Elizabeth about getting the tone of their relationship? We prepared together very meticulously. Um, they are both total angels they're so wonderful and proper artists um we spent a lot of time together in preparation for the film they both had input into the script we rehearsed it almost like a play we had a beautiful rehearsal room that 
again, one of the other brilliant women who was on the film, our art director Tess Newell, turned into a kind of lovely Bloomsbury environment and put all this art up and all these flowers everywhere and we sort of created lovely spaces that felt very true to the world to create it. So Gemma and Elizabeth had input into the script. We visited Charleston Farmhouse and Knoll and went to exhibitions and looked at artwork and listened to music that they would have listened to. And, you know, they had input into absolutely everything and the film was made in this very collaborative, very precise way. So by the time we got to shooting it, their chemistry and their intimacy was very natural because we'd all worked so hard together up to that point. They are great together and... I'm reminded of when I interviewed you last, actually, which was for The Guardian. I did a piece on lesbian sex in film. And <laughs> I hadn't yet seen Vita in Virginia and we were talking about it because the whole point of the piece was sort of like, we don't see enough of this directed by women or directed by, with a sensitivity um, and not just for kind of, salacious kind of mm -hmm. erotic value but to tell the story and I thought the sex scenes you know worked on that level would you like to talk a little bit about, more about the being responsible in that kind of depiction I would love to um I thought your article was really articulate and Thank you. and we spoke before I shot the film so I thought about our conversation a lot when I was going through the process oh, of wow. making the film so your article kind of became woven into the way that Gemma and Elizabeth read it and your article kind of informed how we brought it to life, which is why all of us women should keep talking to each other. So thank you for that. You made Brilliant. us sort of think about it in a in a really thoughtful, deep way. Um, it's funny. I think sex scenes in film and on TV are almost like action sequences. They're non-verbal storytelling. They don't just, ex you know, in, if you're watching an action sequence, it's not really that interesting. Just Just watch something blow up. It's got to have a story. It, you watch how that character reacts to that tank blowing up and that's the story. You don't just watch a fireball and go, cool. So sex scenes are non-verbal storytelling in the same way that an action sequence is and it, they deepen character and they forward plot and it's all about what those characters are choosing to do to each other. <laughs> and that's how, whether someone is dominant or submissive, expresses something about their character so that was really exciting and and you know quite technical in a way to go like how do we tell a story how do we create a conversation between your bodies in Vita and Virginia the rarity of the sex scenes is very intentional because from what we understood from our research in Virginia Woolf's diaries her letters her novels she had a very difficult relationship with her body, first and foremost, and with sex. And so when Vita barrels into her life, somebody who had a very different relationship with her body, she's kind of a Kathy from Wuthering Heights type, connected to her body, tramping around in the outdoors, like very vivid, very alive. That must have been so exciting and, and so bold and so brilliant. And Vita with her brought the opportunity for Virginia to connect to her body in a new way. So we just sort of within the sex scenes of the film, decided we would tell the story of Virginia Woolf's first orgasm. <laughs> Brilliant. Which we can't, you know, that's our perspective on it. I can't know when she really had her first orgasm, but that's the story we tell with our the sex scenes in our film. So that's illuminating and great. And I love to think that I had a small part in it. That's bizarre. You had a small um, part in Virginia Woolf's first orgasm. Well, so <laughs> this is great. Now, let's talk a little bit more about being a female director. I mean, do you even like being asked that question? Or does that feel like annoying? Like I should just be asked about being a director? 
no, it's all right. <laughs> um, do you feel that you've had particular challenges or particular, you know, struggles getting funded for films? Due to I your mean, gender? it's so interesting. It's a conversation we definitely should keep having, both you and I and the industry in general. Um, but I think it's the answers to these things are only possible with hindsight to reflect on hindsight's going to tell us a lot about what's going on at the moment and hindsight personally also tells us a lot about why that particular experience was difficult or why this one was easier so I'm sorry that sounds very vague I do think that my experience as a female director is that I have to be 10 times as prepared I have to answer thousands of questions about my intentions in a way that I myself grew up on film sets working as an assistant director. I've observed a tremendous number of directors at work. And I would say that I have quite a quite a detailed experience and perspective on how directors are treated. And I do think women are sort of ask if they really mean that or like, is that really what you want? More than men. That's very interesting. Like life, really. Yeah. Unfortunately. Really um, yeah, the, the way that, that men have to go and check something that a woman says quite often just to make sure that it's correct no I no I mean it yes I've thought about it but um I also worked on Vita in Virginia with it was made by a bunch of really brilliant women it was also made by a bunch of really lovely empathetic creative brilliant men so I, I think that it's possible for men to bring really brilliant female stories to life I just think that there is an exciting opportunity when it's women telling women's stories that brings a kind of different texture to it. But I certainly don't think it's superior. I just think it's different. Exactly. Um, we celebrate allies on Girls on Film yeah. as much as we do the, the women making the films. Tell us what you're up to next. I just finished a TV series called World on Fire that I made with the BBC. That is a big World War II period drama that's a kind of look at people's experience of World War II which was very exciting because I went from Virginia Woolf to Dunkirk and I was went from lovely ladies talking about their feelings to boys with things blowing up around them. So that was incredible. That was amazing. And um, I was very grateful for the opportunity. It was not one that I expected to be given and, and did involve a lot of people like trusting that I could do that because I had straight up not done an action sequence before that. Um, How was it? Brilliant. It's so fun. <laughs> it's so fun. I also learned that with sort of a few hundred extras and loads of military vehicles, if you hand me a god mic and I stand on top of a vehicle to talk to the, everyone, I do turn into a drag queen. <laughs> Can like you I elaborate just slightly? Do. I just watched an, an enormous amount of RuPaul's Drag Race during that time. Can you give us a little impression, a little taster? I couldn't. I, I just really need to be back in the moment. I'm triggered by the paraphernalia of World War Two into that particular part of my personality. Um, but it was. It was. Um, <laughs> it was wonderful, and I. It's going to be a really brilliant series because it's World War Two told from the perspective of sort of average families and average people, and I was drawn to it because of that. It's a kind of global look at World War Two. Um, there's a German family, a French family, a Polish family. So that was really interesting. It was like a different look at that period in time, which is sort of similar to Vita in Virginia in that sense. It's yeah. like a different perspective on an iconic moment. And um, that was really wonderful. And I'm about to, I'm writing my next film at the moment, which is a, another kind of, I, I, I realised I do these sort of female two-handers and it's another one, but it explores something entirely different. It's a sort of contemporary political drama about a really brilliant female politician and her right-hand woman. Like it's a sort of mentor-protégé. Excellent. Um, sort of all about Eve in the world of politics type well, thing. 
I like the sound of that. Will you come back on Girls on Film and tell us about that when it's when it's? Made? I would love to. Excellent. Chania, it's been so nice to speak to you. Good luck with Beach in Virginia. Thank People you so can much. see it in cinemas very soon. Yes, it's released this Friday, the 5th of July, in many cinemas. Lovely independent cinemas and nice big chains who are supporting us, like Odeon and Picture House and Curzon. So thank you very much for programming us. You need to program independent films. Hear, hear. Yes, and support the girls on film. Thank you, Tanya Button. Thank you. you. These snatched moments with you are exasperating. Meet me so we may have none. Thanks for listening to Girls on Film and thanks to our partner, Mubi, for offering our listeners a rather good deal. You can catch up with movies like Knife Plus Heart on the streaming service and they also throw in a free cinema ticket on the week of release with Mubi Go. They also have a spotlight on LGBTQ plus movies in July. That includes Yang Gonzalez's Les Îles and O Fantasma from Joao Pedro Rodriguez. If you would like this free month of streaming and a month of hand-picked cinema tickets, go to movie.com slash girls on film and movie actually only give you 30 films to choose from which I find a little bit more manageable if you're sort of feeling a bit lost in another streaming services and trying to pick out something good 30 guaranteed good films for 30 days movie.com slash girls on film girls on film is an HLA production produced by Hedda Archibald and Jane Long Skull 